Good morning. My uh, name's Angel Roman. I am an assistant pastor and church planning apprentice at Lake Nona Presbyterian Church. And so in a few years, I hope to be doing what all of y'all are doing here, uh, starting a new church. And so I'm really honored to be here. I'm so grateful that your pastor Ben invited me out to be here and be able to share God's word with y'all. A beautiful and warm congregation, I could tell already. Uh, so I'm truly, truly blessed. What I want to do for us today is I, I want to pray, uh, but before I pray, I'm going to read Psalm 113, which is our sermon text for today. I'll read Psalm 113, I'll pray for us, and then we'll begin. Hear now God's holy and inspired and authoritative word. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, praise the name, or the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Please join with me in prayer. Almighty and gracious God in heaven, help us today with this psalm see your beauty, your glory, and your grace. Help us see that you are far greater and far closer than we could ever imagine, that you are worthy of all praise, and that even in hard and tough and difficult situations, we can trust you. We pray all those things in Christ's name. Amen. Our church, Lake Nona Press, where I come from, we've been preaching through the book of Micah, and the last few sermons off the book of Mar Micah come from... Um, or were in some sense inspired by events in our nation, right? Some really difficult and horrific events where schools were shot up, where uh, churches were exposed for sexual abuse crises. I mean, things that we were mourning about. And so as a church, we've been contemplating that for a few weeks, for a few months. And something that keeps coming back to mind for me is the problem of evil, Maybe some of you are philosophically inclined, so you know what the problem of evil is. It goes something like this. If God exists, then he's either not powerful enough to deal with evil or not loving enough to deal with evil because evil still exists. But actually, my wrestling with the problem of evil hasn't been something philosophical. I think for the most of us, we might not deal with that problem from that angle. For most of us, it's when we wake up and we get a phone call from our parents that they've been diagnosed with cancer. Or when we wake up and we turn on the news and we see that a school was shot up and children were murdered. Perhaps when we go to the doctor and we experience him telling us we're going through something life-threatening, that's when the problem of evil becomes real for us, right? When we begin to wonder, well, maybe, maybe God just isn't that powerful if I'm going through this. Maybe, maybe God just doesn't care about me that much. He has the power to deal with it, but that's why he's not dealing with it. 
I think that temptation, especially in the last few years, has been very real for a lot of us or for a lot of people that we might know. But one of the things that the Psalms do, and I love the Psalms, is that they give us words to praise God. They put words in our mouth. And that does a variety of things, but one of the big things is that it helps correct, it helps shift the way we think about God. It gives us words that accurately describe who God is and what he's all about. And Psalm 113 gives us words that describe God in terms that he's far greater and far closer than we can imagine. If you, if you take notes during sermons, I mean, this is the big idea. This is what I'm going to try to show you from one, Psalm 113 today. God is far greater and far closer than you can ever imagine. And in situations like the last few weeks, last few months, really for some of us, it feels like our whole lives, these truths will reign supreme. So we'll, we're going to go through Psalm 113. And the first thing I want you to notice is that it begins with the words, praise the Lord, and ends with the words, praise the Lord. This is what we might call an inclusio, right? We start with a phrase, end with a phrase, and we do that so that people know what we're all about, what we're trying to communicate. You see this in poetry and stories, and you'll see it here in Psalm 113. So this psalm is all about praising the Lord. But what I really want to focus on is the reasons why this psalm praises the Lord. So I want to take that big idea, and I want to break it in two. The first reason the psalm praises the Lord is because he's far greater than we can imagine. So we're going to look at that. The second reason is because he's far closer. The first, we'll think about how the Lord is far greater than we can imagine and what Psalm 113 might have to say about that. First thing I want you to notice in Psalm 113, it's there in verse 1, and it's repeated three times in the first three verses. First reason why we need to praise the Lord is for his name. First, verse 1, praise the name of the Lord. Verse 2, blessed be the name of the Lord. Verse 3, the name of the Lord is to be praised. And why, why do we need to praise the name of the Lord? What, what does this teach us about God that it's significant? Well, first I want to say is that names in ancient Near Eastern cultures communicated something about the person that bore that name, right? So we can think about the angel Gabriel coming to Mary and Joseph and saying, name your son Emmanuel because he will be God with us, right? Because a name means something. It can communicate something about the person who bears it. What about God's name? What do we, what do we know about his name? Well, the first time his name is communi- or explicitly communicated and explained is in Exodus chapter 3. And we're not going to go there, but I'm going to try to set the scene for you. Maybe you'll remember the story. Right? Exodus begins with the people of Israel in captivity in Egypt. They're under deep suffering. They actually came to Egypt on the invitation of Pharaoh because Joseph, their ancestor, was working for Pharaoh. Now they're slaves. They're working really, really hard. The situation is so terrible that in Egypt, even their children are being murdered by Pharaoh. And they cry out to God. And God hears and responds. The first thing he does is he calls this guy Moses, who had lived in Egypt for some time, and he tells Moses that he's going to go to Egypt and he's going to demand that Pharaoh release God's people. Now, Moses is a lot like me. I am scared of everything. Ask my wife. I mean, just everything. It's horrible. It's a curse, but it's true. And so Moses is terrified. He doesn't want to go before Pharaoh. Pharaoh has all the power in the world. So he starts coming up with a bunch of excuses. God, I don't, I don't speak super well. Maybe you could send somebody else who speaks better than me, you know, that kind of stuff. But one of the things he does in this interrogation with God, giving God excuses, is he asks the the all-important question. He says, God, when I go to Egypt and I tell Pharaoh to let your people go and your people ask me what your name is, what do I tell them? What do I tell them? 
Now, that might be, from Moses' perspective, an excuse, another way to come up with a reason not to go. But actually, it's a really significant question. There's plenty of options in Egypt for gods and in the ancient Near East for gods. Which god is taking God's people out? But what I want to focus on is God's response. God responds, first of all, from a tree, a bush, that is not consumed by fire and needs no fuel to burn. Keep that in the back of your head. And he responds by giving them this name. Now, we, we actually don't know how it's pronounced, this name, right? Uh, we can transliterate it with English letters, Y-H-W-H. And your English Bible is capital L-O-R-D. Because Jewish tradition has it that God's name is too holy to be pronounced. And so they, every time they would read God's name, they would say instead the word Adonai, which means Lord. So our English Bible kind of picked up on that and translated it as Lord. But the name's all over the Bible. We don't know what it's pronounced. Maybe Yahweh, maybe Jehovah. Probably heard of those. Uh, those are, might be close approximations of how it's pronounced. But the really significant point is that after he gives him this name, he says this name means that God is who he is. He says, I am who I am. When, God, when you, the people ask you what my name is, tell them I am sent you. What on earth does that mean? What God is communicating is that he is self-existent, what we might call transcendent. He needs and depends on nothing else for his existence. Now think about the bush that's burning, needs no fuel to burn, and the tree is not consumed. That represents kind of who God is. And why is it important that God is not dependent on anything else? He's utterly transcendent. Well, he's about to do an incredible miracle in taking slaves out of Pharaoh's hands. And in order to communicate that he is the kind of God who could do this, who has the power to do this, he begins by communicating that he's a transcendent God. Psalm 113 wants us to keep that in mind, to praise God for his utter transcendent, for the fact that he lacks no resources from which to act, that he needs nothing from creation by which to exist. That means that he is all-powerful. That's the first thing Psalm 113 wants us to do, is praise the name of the Lord, the name of the God who is utterly transcendent, completely different from the gods of Egypt and Canaan, who were kind of like you and I, who are dependent on the people's praise for reaction. God's not like that. So we praise this God who is utterly transcendent. But Psalm, verse 4 in Psalm 113 gives us another reason why we praise this God, why he's greater, actually, than you and I might imagine. It says that the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, is high above all nations. This is not a reference to his location. He's not located above the nations, like if he kind of hangs out in the clouds or something like that. But this is actually uh, denoting his authority, his kingship. He is a king above all the nations. Then it says that his glory is above the heavens. This is hugely significant for a little tiny country in Israel that's supposed to serve this God. They're not that great, but the nations around them are very great. Think back to Exodus. Pharaoh is very great. They're just slaves. But their God is far greater. Our God is far greater even than the nations. Daniel praises God because he sets up kings and tears them down. He sets up kingdoms and tears them down. He is king over kings and kingdoms and nations. He is transcendent and sovereign. He is all-powerful, lacks no resources. He's far greater than you and I could ever imagine. 
And that means a, a variety of things for us, but I'd like to focus on two things it means for us. First, it means that God cannot be manipulated. The God we praise cannot be manipulated. We don't like to acknowledge or think that we try to manipulate God. But we do this all the time, right? A quick Amazon search for God's diet program or God's workout plan will show a variety of results. And what have we done? Christians have taken God's name, attached them to their cool ideas about working out or diet, and all of a sudden that gives this program authority, right? It gives it weight because it's God's program, manipulating God's name for our benefit. Another way we might do this, and I used to hear this all the time growing up in a Puerto Rican family. I don't know if this is part of our culture or not. I'm going to assume it is. Hear it all the time. People will say that they made a deal with God. They made a deal with God. They said, God, if you heal my, heal my mother from cancer, I'll serve you. God, if you help me with this one sin issue and addiction here, then I'll pray every day. Right? What are they doing? We're looking to manipulate God. If you will scratch my back, God, then I'll scratch your back. As if God needed something from us. As if he needed his back scratched. Psalm 113 asks us to praise a God who cannot be manipulated. But the second thing, and the more pretty, probably closer to uh, the last few months and the things we've been going through in our country and in our world, is the fact that a God this powerful can be trusted. Oftentimes, we go through stuff and we, we go through stuff, and it's the times where we should probably pray the most, and we pray the least. I can't tell you how many times maybe I go through a few days where I'm fighting with my wife, and 100% of the time is my fault, by the way. But when I'm fighting with my wife for a few days, and what's the first thing I need to be doing? I need to be getting on my knees and crying out to the Lord. And if I'm honest with you, it's the last thing I'm doing. Things are not going my way. Things are difficult. The Lord is all I got and all I can trust. And here I am, soaking in my anger, thinking about something else, not praying. Well, Psalm 113 is right about God. What I need to be doing is going after him, right? He has the power to do something in my marriage at that moment that I might need. And yet I, I don't trust him for it. A God who is greater than you can imagine cannot be manipulated, but he needs to be trusted. Now, everything I've said so far and everything the psalm has said so far is only that God is powerful. And he is great. And that's great and all, but if he's not powerful and great for you and I, what does that mean, right? If he's not also loving and kind, the problem of evil still remains. We're still stuck with our issues and our suffering. But the psalm it does something quite amazing. It describes God not just being far greater than we could imagine, but far closer. We really want to focus in on that. We look at verse 5, the Psalm's big rhetorical question. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high? It could stop right there, and God would deserve all of our praise. But it doesn't stop right there. The greatness of our God is not merely that he's not like the gods of the other nations, that depends on nothing else, that lacks no resources for action, that's extremely powerful and a God we can trust. He's more than that. He's a God who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. His greatness does not keep him far from you. His greatness motivates him to be close to you. 
The psalm describes a God who is not only transcendent and sovereign, but a God who's watching and working. He's watching and working. He doesn't only look far down on the heavens and the earth. Look what else he does. I, I'm, I'm going to read verses 7 through 9 again. But I want you to really pay attention to the verbs, the actions. What does God do? And pay attention to the recipients of that action, the object of those verbs. Who does he do it for? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He makes them sit with princess, with the princess of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. We would imagine that a God so great and so powerful, maybe he'd be interested in the smartest people among us. Right? Maybe he'd be interested in the really powerful among us. Maybe he'd like to hang out with those who are extra holy. That's what the God who is transcendent and sovereign would like to do. But we, could, we might imagine, but that's not how Psalm 113 describes him. He looks far down and he looks at the poor and the needy. At the barren. The Psalms, they use this word, uh, these two words, poor and needy, all the time. Uh, if you, you can actually probably do a study just going through the beginning of Psalms all throughout. And it describes a variety of contexts, contexts that you and I might be a part of. First, to be poor and needy, oftentimes in the Psalms, is to be physically and materially poor and needy, to lack resources and wealth. Other times, it's to be emotionally poor and needy. You can think of the psalmist. He's in anguish. And he's crying out to God to just be there for the poor and the needy. He's thinking of himself as poor and needy. And oftentimes the psalmist is King David. He has lots of wealth. And yet he's poor and needy. Other times it's spiritual poverty and need. A universal human condition according to Romans chapter 3. But you can imagine the psalmist crying out to God to have mercy on him. To not count his sins against him. It's a condition that you and I will automatically fall in whether or not we had plenty of wealth and our emotional health was always nice. We would all be emo or spiritually poor. And spiritually poor people don't deserve God. I mean, that's why all of us naturally, when we want to come to God, whether we acknowledge it or not, we try to bring some, some stuff, some credibility I, I once heard somebody say, I don't want to go to church yet because I want to start going to church when I fix up my life. Right? God is really holy, so I want to make sure to be extra holy when I go to church, when I seek after him. We oftentimes excuse ourselves, right? We, we come to church and we hear scripture read and some sins are being pointed out and we're like, man, those people are so terrible. try to justify ourselves, try to make my, ourselves seem more holy before the sight of God. But scripture thinks of us as poor and needy, no matter how holy we really are. But the miracle of scripture, it's not our condition. It's how God treats us. How the sovereign and transcendent God of heaven and earth treats the poor and the needy. He raises them. He lifts them. The perfect and holy God gets dirty and dust and ash heap for the sake of his people. He's far closer than we 
could imagine. The, the barren woman mentioned here, this is really quite significant. Being barren in the ancient Near East was an extremely horrific situation. I, I mean, I can't imagine what it's like even today, and I can imagine it's a horrific situation, full of shame. In the ancient Near East, there were social uh, ideas and beliefs that made that condition even more horrific. First, barrenness was considered a curse. The gods or God must have cursed you. You must be an especially bad kind of person for you not to be able to bear children. Now you can imagine the extreme amount of shame that goes with that. This, the, the kind of isolation that goes with that. But more than that, to be barren in an ancient Near Eastern context is to be extremely vulnerable. In ancient Near East, the people who take care of their elders are their children. What happens when a barren woman gets old? Who cares for her? Vulnerable, full of shame and isolation. And God is saying, I'm looking far down and I see you. There are plenty of examples of barren women throughout scripture where God just shows up and gives them a child. You have, you have Hannah, it's one of my favorite examples. And actually, Hannah sings a song to God after God gives her a child that, act, that uses these same exact words from verses seven and nine. It might be a copy and paste by the psalmist. But Hannah sees herself as poor and needy and spends every day crying, goes to church just weeping, and the priest is like, girl, calm down, go home. And she's like, God, I, I need you to give me a child. I, I can't bear this. And God has mercy on her. God cares about the barren, about the poor, about the needy. And what that shows us actually is that when God feels the farthest, he's actually the closest. When we're in the midst of our greatest need, where it feels like God is nowhere, right? When we're crying out to God, Lord, where are you? Uh, a few years ago, before we had our daughter, Amora, my wife and I experienced a miscarriage. And maybe some of you have experienced this before. And I didn't sleep all night. And I knew God was real, and I knew God was powerful, and I knew God was loving, and I was still like, God, where are you? Where are you? But if Psalm 113 is right, God was the closest in that moment. Psalm 113 could have mentioned a bunch of things that God cared about, but he cared about people who were suffering. And in my suffering, God was there. When it seems like God is uninterested, he's not working. God, my marriage, it's been years and nothing has improved. Where are you? That's when God is working. He is watching. He's working in the lives of those who suffer. When you suffer, when you are hurting, God is close by, watching and working, so much so that God sent his son, not merely to watch, but to suffer. 
to be tempted in every way like we are, but yet without sin. This is the beauty of the gospel that Psalm 113 is highlighting. The transcendent God, all-powerful sovereign, this is the way uh, the Apostle Paul puts it, he who was rich became poor for your sake. He who was in the form of God did not think that something to take advantage of, something to hold against us, but he humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of sinful flesh, to suffer and to die for you and for me, for the poor and the needy. He who lacked nothing emptied himself so that you and I who might lack would gain everything. This is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God does not leave us in our sin or suffering or despair. The God that the psalmist praises, the God that we gathered together this morning to praise and worship is a God who is utterly beyond our wildest imaginations in terms of his greatness, but who's far closer than we could ever imagine. Who's there in those moments of deep pain and suffering. Who's doing something about the problem, not merely watching. He's working. And this is honestly a God that we can trust and turn to even when we feel like we can't. The church father, Athanasius, some, somewhere around the 300s, he wrote this little book called On the Incarnation. I think it's really, really cool. I think all of you should read it. But one of the really significant points of this book is that he uses a lot of metaphors to help us think about what God has done for us in Christ. And he loves to use this metaphor of a king. It'll begin with something like, when a king does this, this, and that, and then he's about to start the metaphor, right? One of the really cool ones is he says, imagine a great king who shows up to spend some time at a peasant's house. What happens to the house of the peasant when the king shows up and sleeps over? I mean, it's utterly transformed, right? You got guards on all the doors. You got people treating it like sacred ground because the king is there. The enemies of that peasant, says Athanasius, are in great fear because the king has showed up and is staying with that peasant. That peasant's home is no longer the home of a peasant, is it? For that night at least, it's the home of a king. That peasant is now sitting at the table with royalty. Athanasius says that this is true of some great king and some great country. Is this not more true when the king of kings, the greatest of all kings, makes his home, his dwelling place among you and I. Does that not mean that our world is transformed? Paul describes it this way. He says that when we are in Christ, we are seated with him in the heavenly places. We are like the poor and needy and dust and ash heap in a world full of suffering, full of sin and horrificness, and we're raised to the high places to sit with Christ Jesus. Our king has taken his home, has made his dwelling place among us, and he is making all things new. And so when we turn on the news, when we hear the news, when we get that phone call, when we wake up again another day with addiction, another day with marriage problem, another day where I can't stop with these sins that keep pursuing me, remember that the God you praise 
the God the scriptures praise does not lack any resources to help you in your time of need. And the God we praise is not a God who's interested in you only when things are going well, but it's a God who watches and works, especially when things are not going well. The great king of heaven and earth has made his dwelling place among us, and he's making all things new. And one day there will be no more poverty, no more need, no more tears in our eyes, but God will be all in all for the glory of God the Father. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you forget everything today, remember that our God is powerful enough, loving enough. He's there, closer than you can imagine. Let's pray.